Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Margot Landman. For those who are just joining us, I'm Deputy Vice President Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Good morning to those of you in the U.S. Good evening to those in Asia. As you know, our speaker today is Jeff Wasserstrom of the University of California, Irvine, calling in from Hong Kong. Jeff is singularly qualified to speak to us today not only because he has been a close observer of Hong Kong for some time and has actually just finished a book on Hong Kong that will be out next February, but also because he's an historian of protest movements, particularly student protest movements in China. Jeff, we greatly appreciate your willingness to take the time to speak with us about what you've seen and heard especially at this rather late hour for you in Hong Kong. Jeff will speak for a little while, and then we'll open things up for Q&A. Over to you, Jeff. All right, great. I, I really appreciate having the opportunity um, to, to do this. So I came over to Hong Kong on this trip. I arrived um, on Saturday, uh, Saturday night, Hong Kong time. And the last time I had been here was, uh, I had left, I had been here from June 3rd till June 7th. So I had gone to the vigil, the 30th anniversary vigil for uh, the June 4th massacre. And then I had observed a protest a couple of days after that, a silent protest by lawyers um, against the extradition bill. And then I left, and soon after I left, there were the giant marches of a million people, and then estimated uh, close to two million people after that, and then the dramatic um, and continually surprising uh, series of events uh, through the summer and into the fall that I'm sure um, you've all been been following. Uh, when I returned, one of um, one of the things I was very excited about was that the morning, the day, the afternoon after I arrived um, on Sunday, there was um, a very large march, uh, one of the first um, legal marches in some time and the largest march um, in, in many weeks. And it was a uh, overwhelmingly peaceful event. Um, there was a lot of concern, of course, as there has been with all of these, that there would be clashes uh, between the police and the protesters, um, clashes that are um, usually started and certainly early in the movement um, were almost always started by moves made by the police that then triggered um, reactions. And one of the things about the movement in general is that it's become in part, in large part, a movement uh, against police brutality or calling for an investigation of police behavior. But during the march itself on, on Sunday, there were relatively few incidents. Um, and on the whole, uh, being here, I've been struck both by, obviously, the value of being on the spot when you are, um, you are studying a topic and trying to understand it, 
Um, I've I've been impressed by the the coverage by local journalists and the ability to follow what's been going on by their reporting, by their tweets, um, by live streams and things like that. But there certainly is uh, a value and a kind of immediacy in being uh, in being there. And some of the things that struck me about being present at this very large scale march, uh, estimated at uh, 800,000 people participating. The organizers estimated, the police estimated about 180,000, and that disparity is fairly um, typical in the estimates. But one of the things was that even though I sometimes talk about the role focus as a, somebody who studied student movements, the role of youth, and um, a lot of the most dramatic actions have been by young people, uh, participants in the, in the march were people of all, um, of all generations. Uh, there were family groups, um, there were young people, there were um, older people, all mixed in. Um, there were almost no, very few foreign flags of any sort. You'll, some, you'll see in the mainland media will emphasize um, the number of American flags and sometimes British flags, but that was a, a small number in this case. Um, there were, um, there was a singing, a fair amount of singing of the um, song that has become a kind of Hong Kong, um, Hong Kong community anthem. Um, and there was just a massive numbers of people. I mean, being honest, but you, you get a sense of what the size of a crowd means. It was so big that while it was a march, it was sometimes um, people weren't really marching anywhere. There were so many people that um, you were barely moving at all uh, to observe it. There were, um, there were some police on the scene, and this is another thing that just sort of comes home more viscerally, you see them, and they were um, menacing looking um, as I went by uh, groups of police at certain points. There was, um, they did not look like uh, impartial, neutral sort of observers who, um, who might take action if something untoward happened. But they, they looked at times like groups that were on edge and almost spoiling for a fight. And there were certain moments when it seemed as though things might get a bit um, combustible early on when um, protesters would give police who had manned um, some of the overpasses, would give them the finger, and the police would, would clower back. Uh, there were incidents at the very end of um, the day. I, w I wasn't there by that point. But I think, you know, as valuable as it was to be on the spot, another thing that struck me being here is the limits of, um, or the illusion that people on the scene will, um, will not find things as mysterious as um, we've often found them watching from afar in the case of this movement people who have been on the streets continually, journalists and others who I talked to, um, talked a lot about how being surprised by, by turns that had been taken. And they were asking me as much as I was asking them uh, what might happen next. And uh, there's a kind of interesting double move that's maybe not surprising, that you, you'll find yourself drawn into conversations here Will it be, isn't it amazing how unpredictable things have been, how there have been moments when it seemed the movement was winding down and then it um, surged again. There were moments when it seemed um, the government might become at least, would have to 
at least become somewhat more conciliatory, and then it doesn't. And But after having an exchange talking about how utterly unpredictable things are, people say, so what's going to happen next? As though somehow there would be an ability to predict. And I think fundamentally, um, in part because there are so many different actors making choices, and it's hard to know who's really calling the shots on either side. It's hard. There, are, there aren't clear leaders of the movement. And it's also not always clear whether Carrie Lam is making decisions or taking directives from Beijing or how this is all working out, that it remains, even though it seems a calm moment now, it remains a fundamentally um, unpredictable moment. Uh, the last thing that I want to say before um, uh, taking questions is just that one theme that I, I bring up in Vigil, um, the book that I, I, I've, I've finished that's coming out, a very short book written very quickly that goes back in time, but is largely about trying to put the events of the umbrella movement to now into historical and comparative perspective. One thing I, I mentioned that is that when I've come to Hong Kong in the last few years, one thing I look for whenever I arrive are signs of change, um, signs that the things that make that something that made Hong Kong special and distinctive from the mainland uh, has disappeared or is in danger of disappearing. And I always find evidence of those things when I'm here. But I also then look for signs that Hong Kong is still distinctively different. And I also find those signs. And one of the examples uh, in this case, um, one of the things I, I, I do to sort of see if Hong Kong really is still different is I tend to go to Chinese University of Hong Kong and see if the Goddess of Democracy statue is still there. Um, she is um, still there. And that's always a reminder that something that can't exist any place on the mainland does exist here. Um, but in terms of what's changed, and there are a variety of things that have been markers of of change or erosion. Um, in past times, it's seeing more, more billboards on the street uh, that advertise um, uh, official things, such as the Belt and Road Initiative, or that speak to, um, to mainland-style propaganda permeating um, the territory. But one of the things that um, seemed to me a difference or a marker of, of erosion was that it was touch and go to me whether I could give a talk on any campus um, about the themes of the book. And in the past, I always thought when I went to the mainland, I probably couldn't talk about, um, it was often that I couldn't talk about the topic of my research, especially if it dealt with protest. Uh, but in Hong Kong, I didn't have to think twice about it. Um, now, the, it, seemed, it was an open question whether I would be able to give a talk about the book anywhere in, um, in the city, in part because universities, um, many universities have been closed down. Um, so I was able to give a talk uh, at Hong Sung University. And, but the fact that it was in doubt whether I could and it seemed touch and go seemed to be a marker um, that things, things had shifted. And another thing that shifted was that when I gave the talk, um, when it was introduced and some of the comments people said was, isn't it great that something like this can still happen? So the fact that people thought it was notable in any way that there would be a talk on, um, on issues of 
protest and repression was a sign in itself of the ground shifting. The things that you used to be able to take for granted about Hong Kong, the safety of the city, um, the ability to um, talk about um, virtually anything, the ability to assume that journalists would not be blocked from coming to Hong Kong the way they would um, coming to the mainland. They're, these are things that you, you used to take for granted, but um, steadily it's harder to take them for granted, even when, even when you can do, even when you can do them. So a year ago, um, when Victor Mallet was blocked, uh, the FT was blocked from coming here, that was something that had never happened in Hong Kong before and had happened with the mainland routinely. And there are just a whole series of those things that, um, that continue to happen that mark uh, a difference. But then, as I say, there also are the things that you continually find that are reminders that um, the differences haven't, haven't disappeared. And the very fact that there was this large-scale march, we have to remember that that is notable, that there still is the ability um, to hold these protests, even if, even if they're not drawing the kinds of concessions um, that participants in the movement hope they will. So I think I'll leave it there and um, take questions and respond. Great, thank you so much. Please type in your questions in the chat box down at the bottom of your screen or send them to info at ncuscr.org. And in the meantime, I have a zillion questions, but I'll just start with one. You didn't say a word about the recent district elections. What sort of impact do you think that they will have, both the size of the electorate, a huge number of people actually voted, and the fact that 17 out of 18 of the district councils now have pro-democracy representatives? Um, so I think, you know, that was a very notable event. And I think that event and then this march are, are connected um, in the sense that for participants in the movement, one of the hopes is that these things will be seen as signals to uh, the Hong Kong government that the movement enjoys widespread support and that therefore the government should give up on this idea that there's a silent majority of people um, who are alienated from the movement and who um, support the government and that this will shift um, the government's actions. But it keeps not happening. So it didn't happen, even though the district election results were very, um, were very made, made a lot of people very happy uh, in the movement. There were people who I've communicated with before who said that was the first time in, um, in many weeks when they really felt optimistic uh, after those results came in. But then when, when it didn't lead to um, a fundamental shift by the government, um, that then there's a, a, a move more back toward despondency. And I think the large turnout for the protest at a time when um, there was always a question of whether people will just be too exhausted after the long period to turn out, the large turnout, people also felt, said it was a very feel-good moment to have that large turnout and a largely um, peaceful uh, resolution. But then, again, 
there's, there hasn't been a, a shift by the government. In fact, there was yet another today uh, tone-deaf statement, uh, it seems to me, by Carrie Lam, in which one thing she said was about the losers in the, um, in the district elections who have been loyal to the government won't be forgotten, and that maybe there'll be a way to give them some sorts of government jobs. So, you know, again, it, it does seem this kind of um, uh, disconnect. I mean, the other thing I wanted to just mention is one other thing that's been very apparent in the conversations I've had with people um, and the things that, that, that people have told me is the degree to which what's the, the movement has been taking a toll on individuals um, and in institutions um, with the universities being a good example, but also it's taking a toll on families that there are just a lot of stories of people within the same family having trouble um, staying cordial or being able to stay um, in conversation with each other because if you end up on different sides within um, uh, toward the movement, you're reading very different media, you're believing very different media. There are people who are utterly convinced that the violence is overwhelmingly coming from the protesters as opposed to people who believe it's overwhelmingly coming from uh, the police and that then the protesters are merely reacting to it. And, and my own feeling is that still to this point, the overwhelming uh, majority of the violence directed at bodies as opposed to uh, property has come from the police side. There's been limited uh, violence against bodies coming from protesters, though it's grown over time. But there are people who are just reading and believing totally um, different media, and it's taking a toll on, um, on the cohesion um, within families. So that's I'm, something that's very clear being here. Sorry. Um, Jay Carter of St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia has written in a question that I think follows from what you've just been talking about. He writes, I've gotten different assessments about the overall popularity of the protests. Do you have any sense that, as some have claimed, the silent majority, in quotes, of people have turned against the protests as they have become more violent? And then he amended that, as violence has become more common. Okay. Um, so I do think that the district elections really call into question that silent majority idea. Um, similarly, the, the surveys that have been taken, there have been, there's been a lot of very active um, uh, social science on the, on the field being, um, on the ground being done, um, with the results being disseminated that, um, by, by very good local, local scholars. Um, so I don't see evidence of that silent majority uh, argument. There definitely are people who have been alienated um, because of the degree of violence. And there's always the possibility that, um, that an uptick of violence or a failure to kind of move toward other things will, will alienate them. But at least so far, um, that really hasn't, hasn't happened. And there's still um, the surveys really suggest, and I think the district election results reinforce the idea that many people, even if they feel there are, um, there are things they wish were done differently on both sides, that there still are a lot of people that think that um, the government and uh, the police are responsible for uh, the level of, um, of chaos in the city right now. We have another 
question on the elections, this from Chris Merck. The district council vote was split about 2040. Is there any data from exit poll interviews or surveys about the composition of those two blocks? If not, what is your guess? You know, I, I don't know. I haven't looked at it in that kind of, um, of that detail. So um, I think there'd be other people who are looking more closely at that, that side of things. So I really don't have a, a good way to weigh in. Okay, shifting gears quite a bit. We have a question from Max Kwok on whether the CIA has been involved in the Hong Kong protests. Well, I think um, the idea that that this is the creation of foreign agents, I don't, I don't see any reason um, to believe that. Um, I that doesn't mean that there 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 are there are clearly um, foreign agents who are hoping for one kind of result or another, but um, I just don't see that as being the kind of um, what's making what's making this tick i mean this is a lot of this is a lot of individual decisions um being made and a lot of people um taking uh taking risks on be in struggling against very long odds and with um very questionable chances for ultimate success uh to protect a community they love and to try to Try to shift. Um, try to shift. I think uh, the government's behavior. Um, so I don't. I don't see any reason to to put great credence in that in this particular case. Though of course the CIA has been active in many cases. It doesn't mean that people aren't trying to do it. But to to think of that as the core of the movement, I think, um, isn't getting the movement right. Okay, we have a many part question from Denise Ho at Yale, not the singer, the professor. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested. Well, if the singer, if the singer wrote in, was listening to this, that would really, um, that would really make my evening. Um, I was oh, hoping- come on, to... don't diss Denise in New Haven. No, 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 she's, Denise Ho is one of my favorite historians <laughs> of, the, of Hong Kong, so, um, but, but uh, go on, please. Okay. I'm really interested in the, quote, things that we used to take for granted. What do you think these things are for people who are native Hong Kongers? As an example, five years ago, primary school teachers, five years ago being the umbrella movement, in Hong Kong were forbidden from wearing yellow. How does this look different for a Hong Kong person? In other words, things that are taken for granted for a Hong Kong person. And then she continues, another way of thinking about my question is, do you continue to have the privileges you do, such as speaking freely, because you are a foreigner? Yeah, so I think, I think certainly, certainly there are daily life things that, um, that must weigh much more heavily on, um, on local people. I think being able to take for granted the fact that it's a city where you could depend on um, on public transport working exceedingly well is no longer something you can take for granted. Um, Chinese University of Hong Kong, where um, Denise used to teach, the the MTR station there is is closed. 
um, it's become a much more cut off uh, place. And this, you know, and there are many ways where things like um, the ability to commute, um, not knowing when um, when the MTR won't be running or when a, um, a station won't be running. So I think there are all kinds of things that um, that that people can't take for granted that they used to about um, about safety and about ease of movement. So those are things, um, certainly. Um, there are things that, of course, um, that remain, uh, remain privileged about uh, being a foreigner coming into Hong Kong um, periodically, um, including just the fact that um, I don't have to think in existential terms about what it would mean for me if the city became in whatever way um, impossible for me to engage in the kinds of behavior that I want to do about giving the talks that I want to give. I could be somewhere else and, and giving them. And so I think the um, investment, I think, I think probably another thing is that, that people can't take for granted here is that many choices of things you do including which restaurant you eat in has now become a politicized choice that there are um there are there are restaurants i one of the first restaurants i walked by um covered with post-it notes turning the window into a, a linen wall and the post-it notes um said that um police weren't welcome and had disparaging comments about police and so if you were not just a police uh, police officer, but say uh, that you were somebody whose whose family included police officers. If this was a neighborhood restaurant, this would no longer be a restaurant um, you would want to or feel comfortable or safe um, uh, safe going to. And similarly, there are others. There are other um, participants in the movement who might not want to um, take their business to a restaurant that hadn't made its uh, support for. Uh, support for the movement clear. So I think this intense politicization of um, daily life decisions is something that would also be, I think, exhausting if you were um, if you were living through it. And a lot of people do talk. I mean, partly journalists who have to cover a movement that's just continually taking place, but there are others are talking about just the degree of exhaustion of living through um, now six months of this amount of uncertainty and activity. Jeff, you mentioned in your opening remarks the glowering police. Did you ever feel that your white face got some of that, some of those nasty looks, or were they glowering at everybody? Oh no, it wasn't it wasn't me. It was really just, yeah, it was more general. Um, it was more general glowering and, um, you know, heavily, and they're heavily armed. Um, so there is just, these are just things that also I think must take a toll, especially if you're, um, if you're living in the city from, uh, from, from day to day. We have another question from Jay that starts with, you know, I have to ask, and we know why he has to ask this, but I'm not sure everybody on the call will understand the question. Um, I'll read it first. I understand that the races are still running with one notable cancellation of which I am aware. 
any observations on their place in the city at this time of crisis? And Jay has been working on the Hong Kong races. I'll just leave it at that. All right. No, Jay's working on the Shanghai races and the, and Sorry, the fact that in the 1940s, when the, the races um, stopped running, that was a sign. Uh, the, 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 the races running were a sign in part of a kind of cosmopolitanism of Shanghai that then disappears after the Communist Party takes, disappeared first with the Japanese invasion, then the Communist Party takeover. I mean, I'm interested in that because I do see a lot of uh, parallels between some of the questions that now seem worth asking about uh, Hong Kong that were worth asking about Shanghai in the 1940s, about the potential for a cosmopolitan city with other, with, uh, associated with various things, being able to exist within a Communist Party um, state. But the races also have a um, symbolic relevance in Hong Kong because uh, Deng Xiaoping referred to the fact that under one country, two systems, many of the things that people enjoyed about Hong Kong would be able to continue, that there's still be, I forget his line, but still be dancing and still be racing. So, um, so that kind of question, I, that's, there's a symbolism to it. But I didn't make it out to the racetrack. I haven't uh, asked people about the races. So um, I can't really comment more about that. Except, you know, these are, there are many things that, um, that, that were promised would continue uh, under one country, two systems that people are wondering, or either have disappeared or people are wondering whether they'll be able to continue. So I can see the symbolism of it. Okay, we have a question from a National Committee colleague, John Lowett about the recent incident with the president and chair of AmCham Hong Kong not being allowed into Macau. Are people in Hong Kong talking about this? What do you and they make of it? So this, I think, would be a good example of the kind of thing where if I were, if I were still in California and following this, I would think, well, I must be missing something that people on the ground wouldn't find this surprising. But actually, people on the ground who are focused on issues of business did find it surprising. Um, there were um, a couple of people who move in that world who were at the talk I gave, and this was a discussion for them. I'm not sure how widely discussed it was, but it seemed, it seemed to come out of nowhere, especially because um, AmCham has, in general, seemed to be one of the organizations that's, that's pushing for continuing engagement and things. So it, it didn't really make sense. But I do think this is the kind of thing that, um, that, that was surprising. That isn't, isn't something that is going to be of big concern to people outside of a, a kind of um, business community. I will say... Um, talking to people, including on the plane over, I talked to a couple of people who've been involved with business um, from the West um, in, in Hong Kong. One of the things I've been curious about is what the impact is on, on the business community. And one of the things that I heard is it's not so much um, that businesses are moving out of Hong Kong, but businesses that were thinking about 
consolidating their activities in one or another part of Asia, and we're thinking of Hong Kong as a potential spot, are being more likely to not go forward on those moves to Hong Kong, but rather think about Singapore or someplace else. I also, um, there was a, a businessman on the flight over who was talking about he was still coming to Hong Kong, he'd been coming for a long time, but that soon he would be shifting to going to Malaysia instead because um, a factory over across the border was going to be relocating there. But when I asked if that was because of the protests, he said it was actually more because of the uncertainty relating to tariffs. But I I think this sort of mood of uncertainty is something that is quite widespread of waiting to see just how much impact um, these things will have. We have a question from Jacques Delisle, law professor at the University of Pennsylvania. I take your points that the coverage abroad has overemphasized the protesters' focus on foreign support, the overemphasis on the foreign flags and Trump posters at rallies, et cetera and that claims, especially from Chinese media, of foreign influence are exaggerated. But there has been a lot of discussion of and hope for the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. What is your sense of how the significance of that is being read in Hong Kong as a sign of U.S. support, of meaningful U.S. support, et cetera, and is that reading accurate? So, yeah, I think there, I think, I think for a, a lot of people, and I think this is the way to think about it, is that symbolically it's, it's important. That I think it's, there's, there's been a worry, and I think there's justifiably a worry after the limited amount of international concern about things that were happening in Hong Kong between the umbrella movement and the recent movement. There's a fear of being forgotten by the world and ignored by the world. So I think you know, there was a lot, uh, a lot of things that happened in 2015 through 2018 that were really worrisome harbingers of um, tightening control from um, the kidnapping of the booksellers uh, to the disqualification of people who'd won seats in the legislature that if, for which there was, there was concern within Hong Kong, but it seemed that there wasn't a lot of international uh, outrage or concern in part because the rest of the world has been so distracted with, with, um, with problems going on there. The United States has been very, very distracted. So I think the fact that this went through the um, Human Rights and Democracy Act was um, reassuring of not so much what it would pragmatically do, but was a re- taken as a reassuring sign that, um, that Hong Kong's concerns were not being, being forgotten. Um, Clearly, there, there was a moment after that when there was, there was a sort of thanking, thanking America rally and thanking Trump um, rally, which confused a certain number uh, of people. Um, and there were a lot of flags there and things like that. But I think that was, that was just a, moment, a momentary thing. What do you mean when you say it confused people? Oh, no, it confused people who... Um, who are interested in both Hong Kong and American politics? Uh, the fact that um, the fact that there was celebrating of um, Trump as a figure by protesters, while then um, 
anti-protest uh, activists here were stomping on Trump on images of Trump's face. So, so people who um, who sympathize with the protests and have no sympathy uh, for Trump, uh, this was a this was a confusing moment. And I'm thinking here actually of some of the foreigners that I talked to, expats um, and people attuned to American politics. Um, that it made for a very strange configuration there, especially because Trump had said, in fact, that has, has continually expressed his admiration for Xi Jinping. Uh, so people who have um, uh, concern with sort of the broader human rights situation found this um, Trump suddenly becoming, for a moment, uh, seen as a heroic figure was um, disorienting. I know I would have found it so if I'd been here then. Okay, we have another question from Chris Merck going back to an earlier comment that you made about the MTR station near CUHK being closed. In addition to the need to rebuild University Station, is there other damage at CUHK that might prevent them from opening again in January? So um, the people that I talked to, I did have, um, have lunch out at CUHK with some um, with, with, with some faculty, and um, there is a determination to reopen. Um, there is still some, some damage. Um, there's a lot of graffiti, but I wouldn't put that in the category of damage that would, would prevent reopening. So there is a determination um, to reopen. Uh, there certainly are, the things have taken a toll on, um, on universities, and there's concern about the toll. Um, there's concern about um, whether international, whether students from abroad will 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 be coming to Hong Kong. Some um, exchange programs have been cut. Um, there's a concern about um, mainland students coming, although some mainland students have uh, come back to Hong Kong universities uh, or, or clearly will. Um, there's been some damage to buildings, but I don't I don't think. Um, I don't think CUHK being able to reopen is, um, is in question. Um, Poly, it's a very different kind of situation, and um, people are still mainly unable to get to their offices there and, um, and things like that. Um, this is another case, though, where I, I've heard people at the same institution disagree with each other over what exactly happened, um, accounts of what happened, and disagree over the likelihood of, um, of things going back to normal early in the next year, even though there's a determination that they will. Uh, it's another case where it's not as though people on the ground are clear about this. Um, there's just a lot of uncertainty. We have a question from another National Committee colleague about universities and the mood. This is from Stephen Wagner. What, what is the mood among the university students and, I guess, changes made by university administrators when CUHK and the University of Science and Technology reopen for the spring semester Will the universities once again become protest centers? Have students decided that this was a poor strategy? And have university administrators made changes to prevent on-campus protests? 
So I'm not sure. I'm not sure on, on each of those counts. And one of the reasons why I think it's, um, this is another case where the leaderless uh, nature of the movement is hard to, um, to judge. And also there's disagreement among um, some people who are, are intimately involved with campus life about how many of the activists who were on campuses at the times when there were raids were students of that campus or how much um, how many of the people were protesters who were perhaps former students or um, others who then came to the campuses so it's not clear as with many things who who would be making that decision in a case that there isn't there aren't the um, the movement isn't being sort of run by leaders of student organizations or things like that. Um, there's a lot of talk about um, university administrators and which administrators um, did things that um, that students felt were most appropriate or or least appropriate, and a lot of concern about the fact that when university um, uh, administrators tried to intercede at some points um, they were they were not uh, treated as um, acceptable moderators uh, by the police so I think it's it's just one of many examples where even if even if there's a desire to calm things down and ratchet things down it it the ability to do that depends on responses by multiple actors, um, including how, how the police treat um, university administrators. But there's been, people have been commenting, and I think it's true, that, um, that there's an unusual expectation put on um, how the roles that university uh, leaders could play compared to how this plays out in some other places where, um, where student activists are, are involved. So I think this is a, yet another thing where we'll just have to watch um, um, how, it, how it unfolds. Okay, we have another question from a National Committee colleague, Bridget Donovan. There's a piece in the South China Morning Post over the last week when Hong Kongers saw authorities in the city of Huazhou in Guangdong quickly quell massive protests by making significant sessions. This was over a proposal to build a crematorium that led to clashes between local residents and riot police. Um, they made concessions and the question is whether folks in Hong Kong who saw this might think that there's a possibility of concessions coming from the Hong Kong government. Oh, that's, I mean, I think the thing is there haven't been, um, there haven't been signal. I think people have been watching for signals of concessions coming from the Hong Kong government and it, they keep not um, coming except for the eventual withdrawal of the, um, extradition bill but I, I mean I do think the, the there's there's a lot of um, certainly has been a lot of discussion in the media of um, the concession across the border but I think it's important to remember that 
there have been times when concessions have been made um, to protesters on the mainland when it's a very specific issue um, and a very specific um, uh, kind of concession has the potential to make something go away. And also, Beijing has been worried during Umbrella and again now, one of the things that they really don't want to see is any potential for um, protests to be happening outside of Hong Kong that could in any way be connected up with what's going on in Hong Kong. So it seems to me that some of the concession might be a desire to make it go away um, so that there wasn't any possibility for that, especially because of the proximity uh, to Hong Kong. So even though the mainland is more, uh, has, there's more repression of protests, uh, I think this is an example of the kind of situation where there is periodically um, uh, concessions made. And I think at this point, the movement in, in Hong Kong would require some, there isn't, there isn't as simple a fix of what um, would be seen as a significant concession. I still think that the one concession that probably could ratchet down um, discontent, if not make the movement um, necessarily disappear, would be a call for a real investigation of police brutality by a kind of body that a wide spectrum of people could believe in. Uh, I think if something like that had happened during the summer, there's a very good chance that um, the movement would have um, wound down, that that would have been the kind of thing that would have shifted, um, shifted support away from the people um, still pushing for the protest. And perhaps then there would have been a kind of silent majority that thought, okay, uh, here's something we work with. But that hasn't happened. That didn't happen. And I think now, it, now it's questionable how how much impact it would have, though I think it would still would be a first step uh, toward moving toward, um, toward a more reconciliation system setup. Another question from Jay, who wonders about the mood of the city overall. He hasn't been to Hong Kong since 2015. Assuming that it is not a day of a protest, if you take the airport express in and walk around TST or Central, how different does the city feel? Would it feel familiar? Yeah, I think that's a really good um, question. There are many places that would feel quite um, familiar. You would see, you would see more, um, you'd see more graffiti, and you would see more um, post-it notes on windows. You would see things like that, but it would be possible to, um, to have an experience that was not so different. And, um, you know, I've had some, some Hong Kongers tell me that people seem to have the sense that you're not safe anywhere and that things are completely unsafe. But if you aren't in a place where um, something's going on that day, uh, a protest, that often it can be be quite routine. And there are areas where you can walk around, walking around TST today, it, um, 2015. Um, so there are places clearly that feel very different, um, university campuses because of, of what's taken place. Um, but there also are places where things are going on quite normally. And even while there was the march, um, the march it was very slow to get 
uh, from one street to the next. So I went off to a street that ran parallel to where the march was going on. And I walked by <laughs> a bar where people were all just watching a, um, a soccer game on a big television screen. So it's not as though absolutely everybody is, um, is obsessed with the protests, even while the protests um, are going on. Um, so yeah, there are places that would seem surprisingly familiar, but I think the fact that you can't take for granted um, that you won't run into a setting where, where something's very different does make a difference. Chris Merck had a response to Jay's question also. He said, I met a Singapore-based banker last week who travels to Hong Kong every other week, arriving on Tuesday and leaving on Thursday. He commented that he just checks an app to see where demonstrations are schedule, scheduled and avoids those intersections. For him, it has not been a problem. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, there is a chronology and a geography uh, to these where there are things that are unpredictable that happen at different times, but um, the largest protests are on, um, are consistently on, on weekends and there have been clashes have often been on weekends as well. So yes, that Tuesday to Thursday pattern could avoid a lot of them. And, um, and there are largely ways to know where something's going to happen, um, and avoid them. I mean, for me, it's looking at the apps to see where I might want to go if I want to see another rally before I go. Um, <laughs> so you do have the way to do that. Um, but yeah, I can understand that, um, that, that, that attitude. Jeff, there have been a lot of dire reports about the impact of the demonstrations on Hong Kong's economy that it's now in recession. I've gotten messages from hotel, a hotel that we use frequently for our delegations offering incredibly low rates because the tourists are not going to Hong Kong these days. Do you have a sense of the economic impact? You mentioned that somebody you spoke to was making a decision to leave for his business to leave Hong Kong for reasons that had nothing to do with the demonstrations. But what is your sense of the impact on economic life? So clearly, clearly it's had, you know, something of an impact on, it's had an impact on, on tourism and it's going to have, and it's had an impact. There have been, um, there have been conferences and festivals and those kinds of things that have been um, canceled or it's in doubt whether they'll be held. I mean, I think in long, in the long run, um, it's just going to alter um, calculations from people thinking of Hong Kong as a safe and um, predictable place uh, to a le lesser one. So, um, Clearly, it's going to have some impact on 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 the economy. Um, clearly, there also are some functions that it continues to have that um, that still make it important uh, for uh, financial activity. So, um, yeah, we need to we need to wait and see the reports. But it clearly has taken something of a toll. Um, it's hit Disneyland to just give one example. Um, 
and there are um, hotels giving um, bargain rates and things like that. Um, and there was a cutting of, this wasn't anything I found here, but before I left, I think United has canceled one of its um, regular flights, though the flight I was on was still pretty full. I was hoping to get a row to myself because people would be scared to be flying to Hong Kong, but it, it wasn't true. Uh, the plane was still pretty packed from uh, San Francisco over. So I think it's one where you calibrate with a lot of these things. And, and this has been, I mean, this is maybe a kind of last point to make about Hong Kong that I do make in the book and I think is continually worth uh, keeping in mind. Um, my, own sense, my own sense is that it's hard to see how this movement will end in a, um, end with major concessions. Um, and it's hard to see how the trend toward um, over time increasing tighten, tightening of controls and over time, how much time it's unclear, a narrowing of the gap between how life is lived in Hong Kong and how it's lived in mainland cities. You know, I see that as the trajectory things are going, but I think it's very important um, to remember how often Hong Kong and Hong Kong's people have surprised us and made fools out of forecasters. So I think anybody who thinks they know what, uh, with any certainty of what lies ahead for Hong Kong should really keep in mind that from 1840, from the 1840s on, Hong Kong has consistently made people, made fools of predictors who either underestimated its potential or overstated um, the sort of um, impending death of it. That, you know, that the, there are all kinds of... There he Can is. Can you hear me now? Can you yes. hear me now? Yes. Great. Sorry about that. Um, I don't remember where we were, though. Just saying that, you know, I, I don't see... Uh, I don't see a, a easy scenario for um, you know a positive ending, but I also am keenly aware of how um, con continually um, events in Hong Kong have had the capacity to surprise, and so I think it's important to keep that in mind um, whenever trying to look look forward to realize how often um, how often any kind of prediction has ended up looking foolish. Okay, we have time for one more question from Chris Merck. Is the university's service center open? And do you have a sense of how many other foreign academics are in Hong Kong now? Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know if the university services is open. I didn't, um, I didn't try to go there. I am not here doing that, that kind of research. Um, I, and I don't know how many other foreign academics. There are a group of us at this uh, small workshop here, um, but I do know that there was plans for another workshop. I was supposed to be here for, for two workshops that were back to back. And the earlier one that was gonna take place at Baptist um, was canceled. It was canceled a couple months ago or was postponed to late January. And so my sense is they're probably are um, fewer, fewer foreign researchers here than there would be um, in an ordinary time for that. And, but there are probably more, there's certainly more foreign journalists here because um, the protests have become and stayed um, a major international story. 
And I think that's important to note um, for those of us who focus on, um, on China and on Hong Kong, that um, this has stayed a major story at a time. There are, there are giant protests in a lot of different parts of the world, and um, they aren't all getting the same kind of sustained, in fact, none of them are getting the same kind of sustained attention as the Hong Kong ones are. And I think that has to do in part with many factors, including the creativity of the protesters and their ability to keep making uh, different kinds of moves that keep um, some of the attention on what's happening there. And I think some of the fact that the protests have kept moving to different sites and taking different forms is partly due to not wanting them to, to fade from international attention. All right, unfortunately for us, we've come to the end of our hour. Jeff, it's getting late for you. Thank you so much. And thank oh, you been... to everyone who called in. Yeah, it's been a pleasure and I really appreciate the questions. They've given me a lot to think about.